Hi, dear readers. This is Sky. I just wanted to apologize at the start of this uh, episode for my really, really poor audio quality for our past two episodes. Uh, turns out I'm a big dum-dum and was recording on my laptop's internal microphone rather than my nice, nice podcasting microphone, uh, which is a rookie mistake. I should know better. Um, so we've got it fixed for this week. I should sound significantly better. I'm sorry that I had to subject you to that. But uh, here's the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Interlibrary Loan. Today's an exciting episode for us because we're going to be discussing the sixth section of Cloud Atlas entitled Slucius Crossin' and Everything After. Now, what, you ask, is so exciting about this section? Well, as you've been following along, you realize that each story in Cloud Atlas chops off in the middle, transitioning us to a new story, leaving us with no clue of what happens in the previous story. This is the first one where that doesn't happen. This is the point at which the novel turns. Uh, so not only do we get to experience the entire story, but then we also get to experience, you know, the end to uh, a character, to a story. And this means that we're going to start re returning to the previous stories, which we have invested so much time and energy into. So, you know, this is obviously a really important part in the reading of the story. It's the first time we get a view of every single character. And I'm sure we have a lot to talk about. So without much further ado, let's get started. I'm John. I'm Katie. And I'm Sky. All right. So as always, we're going to do a quick little recap of the events of last week's reading. In that case, that was the first section of An Horizon of Sanmi 451. This was a really interesting section. I think most of us agreed it was kind of our favorite in a lot of ways because this is a very um, science fiction inspired section that tells the story of a fabricant, which is a kind of clone, cloned human, but has specific properties of its kind of mental capacity engineered to serve certain purposes. As we discover, they're also fabricants who are physically engineered. It seems that Sanmi is only really mentally engineered because she is a server in a kind of futuristic McDonald's in a future Korea called Neosokoporos, which is kind of this dystopian community ruled entirely by corporations. Um, so throughout the time with that we have with her, we discover this is one, an interrogation before she is to be put to death. And really her story is that she was, you know, like I said, this kind of mindless cloned human server who slowly gains sentience and is then smuggled out of her restaurant in this daring breakout, but is actually pretty boring. And then she ends up in the lab of a grad student who, as it turns out, is not really a good grad student either. He's just rich and he's buying his research. And so she's broken out, doesn't... So she, she meets this guy, Wing, but he's another fabricant, and he gets killed accidentally, so he, she loses her only friend. But then a doctor, um, Dr. Meffy, actually takes interest in her, breaks her, not breaks her up, but, you know, like, takes over after the boring grad student is boring, teaches her real stuff, and then just at the end of that section, she is transitioned into a new section of her life as she discovers that the... Kind of evil police force is, is is going to capture her and last we see her she's being shuffled away into a car and she's on the run dun 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 yeah it's getting a little complex because not only are we going you know, kind of forward and into the future with these stories as they progress but they're also getting more and more narratively complex they are which 
leads us, of course, to this week's reading. As you said, Solution's Crossing and Everything After. And I have to say, before we even begin our discussion, what did I just read? And also, wow, there are some really, <laughs> really great things to touch on in this reading. Uh, issue one, Duck Farts. Duck Farts, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, before we even get to Duck Farts, before we even get to Duck Farts, uh, hole spew is a very creative euphemism for uh, diarrhea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Katie, do you want to do a quick kind of synopsis of what this section is to get us right into our discussion? Sure. So, this section, as John said previously, is the only section in the book that is presented in its entirety. We get the whole section all together. And this takes place um, in this post-apocalyptic society it's set a couple hundred years after sanmi 451 after the events of that that uh, story and uh it's told from we the the narrator the main narrator that we get is zachary who is an old man and he's telling a story about basically his life story beginning in his in, in his childhood he's telling this story and One of the biggest hurdles that we have to get over with this chapter is this interesting dialect, which I'm sure we're going to discuss. So there's that to take into into account. But anyway, this they live on this post-apocalyptic society and it's on this place called Big Island. And we learn that this is Hawaii, which we'll talk about that, too, I'm sure. And so Zachary's people, the valley folk are the are farmers and they have this opposing tribe that tends to ambush them called the Kona tribe and anyway Zachary begins most begins this story with the tale of how his father died there's old Georgie who we meet old Georgie seems to have some influence over Zachary and we'll discuss what who old Georgie is uh the people worship a deity who happens to be Sanmi, and we learn about uh, we learn about what led to this post-apocalyptic society. There was some kind of big fall of a of a of a previous people. Oh, of course, uh, people come to the island from elsewhere, and they are called prescients. And we get another main character who begins to interact with Zachary, and her name is Maronim. And she, what happens is these prescients, they come on this ship and they, like, trade with the people, with Zachary's people. But this particular person, Maronim, decides she's going to stay and study the, the, the villagers. And Zachary doesn't want to trust her at first but eventually she actually is hosted by his family and anyway they go trekking all over the place and Zachary finds this weird egg-shaped thing that spews out holograms and they go to this old observatory and find things and Zachary had this weird dream spirit dream thing and was given prophecies to fulfill or 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 to not fulfill and it's all very odd and weird and what did i just read (laughs) um yeah so there are a number of things in this 
section that I really want to just like outline at the beginning. One, this section, we don't really figure this out until the very end, but this section takes the place of an oral history. Yes. Basically, what makes Zachary important is that he meets Miranem, who's this outsider human from the smarter society, and they form a friendship. She goes to investigate the telescopes uh, on top of the big island of Hawaii, and he's kind of her guide. And then she repays him by saving him from a Kona raid on his tribe, taking him away from the big island. It's not really immediately obvious where she takes him to. It doesn't sound like she takes him to prescient, like to to the to the society of the prescience because the way it ends then is he's telling his story and the last thing we get from his story is he's witnessing you know the big eye as he calls it uh disappear before his life until it's you know shrinked enough to fit in the the o between his finger and his thumb that's the last thing he says and then we get a break in the story and it says zachary my old pa was a weird bugger I won't naysay it now. He's died. So then we immediately realize, oh, wait, Zachary, his father. So the person who's saying the end of this section is, is, is relaying the story that his father relayed to him, which means that this section is an oral history to his son. And then his son says, you know, I think some of the things he said were true. I think some he may have exaggerated a little bit. But he, you know, the thing he said about the, the, the weird silvery egg, the horizon, uh, that's true because after he died, I was looking through his things and I found this. And like Poss said, if you warm the egg in your hands, a butesome ghost girl appears in the air and speaks in the olden tongue, what no one understands nor never will. And then basically he says, sit down a beat or two, hold out your hands, look. And we get to the next, you turn the next page. And it says an horizon of Sanmi 451. Mm -hmm. So what I find so fascinating about this section is we get the entire thing. However, Zachary only gets to see, you know, part of Sanmi's story, just like everybody else. They only get to experience part of the story and we're experiencing as they're experiencing it. Then this section is kind of ended. Zachary's son has the horizon, tells us to hold out our hands, says, look, I guess, you know, hands us the, the, the horizon. And then you turn the next page and we get back to Sanmi's story. So as this section ends, we get the opportunity then to re-experience her story, to finish her story in a way that Zachary didn't. Whoa. But what I also find really fascinating about this is the fact that this story is being told to us, not actually by Zachary, but by Zachary's son. It's being filtered to us by his son. Do you remember what we discovered in the Pacific Journal of Adam Ewing thanks to a certain footnote? Yeah, it's it's the this section has such a great parallel with the Pacific Journal of Adam Ewing. Um, the you know the idea of both sections as you know the the recollections of the fathers being filtered through the sort of editorship of their sons is pretty cool. Right, and there are also several elements mm-hmm. throughout the story that are clearly meant to be callbacks to Adam Ewing. Uh, yeah, first and foremost, Zachary's brother is named Adam. Yes. And in fact, is captured into slavery by the Kona. And that is what we start with. Seleucia's Crossan is like a place. And Zachary basically ran into the Kona, this evil tribe there. And in hiding from them, 
inadvertently led them to his family. His dad got killed and his brother got captured into slavery. So Zachary feels really like guilty about this. But I find it really fascinating that his brother is named Adam and his brother was sold into slavery. What do we remember about the Pacific Journal of Adam Ewing? Right at the very beginning, Ewing sees a slave, or rather the slave sees Adam and recognizes something in him. Mm-hmm. Knows that the two of them, there's, you know, there's something there. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, future Adam is past Atwa, but I mean, maybe yes. See, that's, that's instantly what came to mind. And maybe it's, I, I, I'm, I'm being too much informed by, uh, by the film Arrival, which I gushed about a while ago, but that was instantly what, like, yeah, what, what is this concept of time? And also there are other um bits throughout this section that made me think what is this concept of time and also souls and everything is so cloudy uh lots of clouds yeah and all of these things that i've been kind of pointing out trying not to say like too much like this is important but it is like uh, at least i get to talk about them now so one you know how i've talked about telescopes every time they've come up Mm -hmm. well hey look at what the like the rising action of this story is about He's taking Miranem on a journey to view the old radio telescopes on top of Hawaii. So uh, Adam Ewing talks about telescopes and Megan, the niece of Six Smith, works at this facility that they're going to. Like, you know, there are all these, these things are coming together in this really weird, compact way. Furthermore, um, you know, they're on a series of islands and there is one tribe that's kind of dominant and enslaving the other. I mean, that is what the first section was talking about was the relationship between the Maori and the Moriori. Yeah. That relationship between um, the, you know, it, it's almost like a one-to-one um, analogy between the Moriori and the Valley people and the Kona and the, uh, and the Maori people. And then the, the prescience and like Adam Ewing and, uh, and the Europeans he's uh, he's with. Oh, absolutely. Um, and it really feels similar. Uh, there's also there's all these like parts with the um, the icons that the valley people sort of. I guess this is like the the primary like f- worshiping site of their religion um, has to do with these sort of like carved wood icons that are very similar to the the dendroglyphs from that the Moriori used. Um, so it's it really brings you back to this to this world that we haven't been to in a while. Yeah, it's almost like we're experiencing the same story, but from a different perspective. You know? Yeah, we're no longer Adam Ewing. We're we're Ottawa. Yeah, absolutely. Another part of the of these people of the of Zachary's people this is their kind of the the way that their entire view of their life and society is fashioned on so they have a deity and they and he says that other tribes have various other deities but Zachary's people have one deity and that is Sanmi and they believe that she takes their souls once they've once they have died she takes their souls and put puts them in new what are they called babbits babbits are are, are babies yeah yeah how is babbit formed (laughs) But yeah, and basically they directly believe in reincarnation and they believe that the reincarnation happens through Sanmi, 
Right, which has been such it, it's it's clearly been such a theme throughout this um, throughout this entire book. Uh, all all of these characters that we've noted through each section that seem to have it, this odd connection to a past character, and here we have a people whose like entire worldview is based around that. But what is interesting is that our reincarnated character in this story is not Zachary. Uh, I mean, I'm skipping way ahead, but this, you know, this weird comet-shaped birthmark that we've seen on several characters doesn't appear on Zachary, and Zachary's not the supposed reincarnation of any past character in this section. Who is it? It's... It's Miranim. It's Miranim. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that. That was another like part of this section that I found so fascinating is that our reincarnated, if we can call it that, being in this section is not the the narrator or main character. I guess I mean Miranim is a main character in this section, but yeah, and that's why I think we're almost like it is the same story as Adam Ewing, but all of a sudden we're we're switching to a different character, right? You know, it's maybe Adam was the first soul. And that soul has continued through to Miranem, and she's the end. And maybe we're a new soul starting a new Adam Ewing journey. Journey. That's just my speculation. That's kind of outside of what's in the text, but you never know. What I also find really fascinating about how Sanmi is the form of their religion, though. I mean, at one point, he says kind of a prayer that the abbess kind of taught him, which is, Dear Sanmi, who art among us, return this beloved soul to a valley womb, we beseech thee. And this is part of the whole reincarnation belief. But I find it so interesting because there's so much religion in Sanmi's story, but her religion is, a, is it's not actually a religion. It's just part of the method of control. You know, she has the six catechisms that Papa Song is worshipped as a deity, but in this very constructed way to force them you know, to force the fabricants into their 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 daily order. And now all of a sudden it, it's flipped around and Sanmi is the object of a very true, very real vol- religious veneration. Yeah. Do we remember, though, what Adam Ewing said? Not Adam Ewing, what Robert Frobisher said about faith? It's the most, the least exclusive club with the most uh, finicky doorman or something like that. Yeah, I just found that so fascinating. Um Basically, just talking about how he was, how, how Ewing himself is, is, not Ewing, I keep on saying Ewing, how Frobisher himself doesn't get faith. He can't really buy into it. Uh, the least exclusive club on earth has the craftiest doorman. Every time I've stepped through its wide open doorway, I find myself stepping out on the street again. I don't know. It's just, it's so fascinating. Um, but another thing, kind of right at this moment when we're, you know, it's just first getting in to the story and we first find out that Sanmi is a religious deity, he's thinking about his brother who is captured in slavery. And he says, uh, he being Zachary, lastly, the moon, she raised her face, but that cold lady didn't say nothing. Nay, she didn't have to. I knowed what she think to me. Adam was looking at that same moon only three, four miles away. But for all I could help him, that could have been beyond or far Honolulu. So I, I couldn't help but read this as a direct reference to like every other character. Like, yes, he on its face means Adam, his brother, was looking at the same moon. But it also means that Adam Ewing, you know, several hundred years previously, 
on his own kind of marooned Pacific Island for a while was looking at the same moon. Like we are all souls. We're all characters. We're all people within the same universe, whether or not we shared at the same time. Yes. And that's summed up so beautifully. Like there's, there's a line like near the end of this section, I think that basically says that exactly, which I found, I found so linking to the overarching concept that has been emerging but now is really coming to be full circle and he's what is it says oh uh he's talking to miranim and asking about about her her soul and yeah miranim says prescients believe that when you die there that's it and he asks what about your soul and she says they don't believe prescients don't believe that souls exist and so Zachary says, just that once I sorried for her. Souls cross the skies of time, Abbas would say, like clouds crossing skies of the world. And there we have it. Souls cross the skies of time. Well, and this is mm-hmm. um, like all of our heroes, all of the, the comet marked uh, heroes of this of this novel. Um, they have this kind of like loss of faith or lack of faith at some point in each section we've read previously, right? Um, you know, Sanmi451 loses her faith in a very, like, total uh, way. Uh, but, you know, Frobisher says, you know, his line about uh, about faith, uh, you know, and I feel like uh, Louisa Ray um, has that moment where she says, like, no, 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 I'm not supposed to believe in any of this, like, weird fate crap, but here I am, you know, reading... Frobisher's letters uh, with the comet mark on on uh, on his back and like I'm freaking out here. Um, they all have these confrontations with faith uh, that are, you know, I think each one is. I mean, I, maybe this will come up more when we read this last section with Adam Ewing. But I even feel like Adam Ewing, who is a devout Christian throughout the first section, he confronts the the. Uh, conflict between the Moriori and the Maori, and I think even you know through that maybe his faith is tested. At least we, as a reader, um, you know, see that and and think like, whoa. Well, and speaking of faith, then uh, Zachary at one point has kind of three very terrible, very frightening dreams, and he goes to the the Abbey, um, or sorry, the Abbess kind of the main priestess of the church of Sanmi and tells her of these dreams and basically gets three prophecies out of them. Um, one hands are burning. Let that rope be not cut Two, enemies sleeping. Let his throat be not slit three bronze is burning. Let that bridge be not crossed. Now, Throughout the story, just just the Zachary story, all of these come to play. When Zachary and Miranim are at the radio observatory, they have to climb over a fence and climb back over to get out. Um, when Zachary's up there, he's feeling like he's betraying his people. He's feeling that kind of the knowledge that Miranim is bringing him is is too much. He's you know he's losing his faith. He's seeing the wider world a little bit. And I'd like that's a very believable kind of crisis of conscience, crisis of faith. Um, and so at one point, 
he hears the voice of his grandfather speaking to him, calling him a Judas for abandoning his people. Now, we remember the use of the term Judas. Uh, Sanmi used it a lot. For anybody who would kind of betray, they judas me. They judas her. She was a Judas. So there's an interesting like connection between those two. But then at one point, he gets the compulsion to kill Miranem. Um, old, uh, old Georgie tells her, tells him to kill her. And Old Georgie is kind of the devil of their Sanmi worship. I also view it as kind of a hallucination. I, you know, I, I really think it's a hallucinatory element. And so at one point he tries to throw his spear at Miranem and misses. And she's like, what was that? And he was like, oh, I thought I saw something, but I, it was old Georgie. I didn't actually. Um, and then they're going over a rope ladder and old Georgie says, well, you missed your first chance, but here you can cut the ladder and she'll, she'll fall to her death. And this is when he remembers hands are burning. Let that rope be not cut. He doesn't. And she survives. Um, but the next section, when they kind of come back and the Kona have raided their village, he finds a sleeping Kona warrior and decides to slit his throat. And he remembers the second prophecy, enemy sleeping, let his throat be not slit. He remembers that. He decides not to follow it. The third prophecy, bronze is burning, let that bridge be not crossed. Well, they get to a bridge. There's some fire. He remembers that one. He decides not to cross the bridge. Then a whole bunch of Kona warriors cross the bridge at the same time, and it collapses under their weight. So two out of the three of the prophecies he follows, and they, they, they save him in some way. However, what if these prophecies don't just apply to Zachary? What if they apply to every character throughout the entire book? An interesting question. Mm-hmm. Well, and wasn't it too... So he's told these prophecies, and he's told... Well, within his belief system, it's important that he follow these prophecies. Otherwise, Sanmi is not going to reward him when he dies by placing his soul into a new babbit. So, Zachary has this crisis when he decides to slit the Kona warrior's throat because now what's going to happen to him? Does he have this the, the opportunity anymore to be reborn in the valley? In his belief system, no. Yeah, this is an interesting part about um about Zachary because he believes as be- like he basically believes that because he uh, of the events at Slusha's Crossing where he led the Kona warriors to uh, kill his father and enslave his brother that he is sort of like damned and uh, is you know not going to be able to be reincarnated. Um. I don't, so John to your uh your question about like can we make these prophecies apply to the other characters in this in this novel uh there are some that seem like don't cross the bridge uh seems like something Louisa Ray might have uh, a prophecy she might have needed um, well and I'm actually looking at that section right now trying to see if there's any reference to bronze or burning or pain or brightness or anything like that and i don't know that the bronze is burning section really applies but like obviously let that bridge be not crossed certainly applies to lisa ray mm-hmm. um let's see what else do we have the other two i'm not so sure yet but remember we have more more to go we have more stories to to read more stories to finish right hands are burning let that rope be not cut and bronze uh sorry enemy sleep and let his throat be not slit well Enemy, enemy sleeping. Um, I mean, well, that's the same story. I'm thinking back to that Louisa Ray story, but uh, 
of the the what was his name uh smoke bill smoke or joe napier yeah yeah bill smoke uh killing killing six smith but I, I don't know i don't know that that really can apply but yeah no i'll have to keep those in my in my mind because i do i do like that maybe louise O'Reilly in her story has a a bridge crossed a uh a uh she has a bridge crossed a rope cut and a throat slit maybe in louise O'Reilly's story the prophecies are reversed or something hmm. <laughs> but one interesting thing I found about this section, not really super relevant to, the, to our discussion right now, just because I flipped the page and remembered it because I annotated it. There are a bunch of references in this section, either to contemporary Hawaii, can, our contemporary Hawaii, or to kind of nuclear energy programs. Um, there's a there's a location called Anoya Dwellin, which I'm assuming is named for Daniel Anoya. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. I could be wrong. The longtime senator from Hawaii who died a few years ago. Um but then there's also a character whose name is Napes Truman. So I, fe- I found that really interesting because there's this entire background of the fall. And in fact, we get direct references to radiation and Sanmi. And then we get kind of vague references to radiation. You know, people get scabs and stuff like that, radiation sickness. So clearly whatever the fall was, was kind of a nuclear holocaust. And here we have a character named Truman, who, uh, you know, obviously Harry S. Truman is the president who authorized the use of the atomic bomb on Japan. I found that interesting. But also Truman, the character, is the person who first went to the radio observatory, saw they were there, came back and kind of reported on it. Isn't, so, isn't Truman the character an ancestor of Zachary's as well? No, he's an ancestor of this is the, only the va- oh, wait, the Napes. Yeah. Yeah, he's oh, 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 he's oh. the current Nape's grandfather and he's like almost I found that character to be super interesting this this tale he tells of Nape's Truman um who is like kind of a cautionary tale and like a historical evildoer and but like not not like a mastermind the way that Napier is in the Louisa Witt Ray story but just like yeah, a cautionary tale. He's he flies too close to the sun kind of. And is sort of uh, punished by well, but, old but speaking Georgie. of Napier, his I mean, his grandson is named Napes. Yep. Um, but it, yeah, it says Truman, the the historic Truman, was the uh, the only Valleysman who had ever lived to fifty and weren't flaking with red scab, or dying a make long was him. So there's you know kind of for whatever reason he didn't succumb to the radiation poisoning. On that note, and on the discussion of race and the evolution of race in this story, they do talk about how all the Prussians have dark skin. And they've never seen any of the Prussians who have light skin. And Miranim specifically says that's because our skin is genetically engineered to withstand radiation sickness in a way that yours isn't. Yeah, that right. was cool. You know, that's something that, one, we get a little bit of Sanmi because Wing says that when all the purebloods die away, it will be us, the genetically engineered, who will really take over the the world um but then we get a little bit of this because Miranim in one of their journeys one of her because she comes back to the island every you know few every six months really in, in the journey or her in her trip that proves to be like the one where they go you know it's the bulk of the story uh Katkin which is Zachary's sister is about to die she's got poisoned by a fish and Zachary begs Miranim to save her and Miranem basically does the thing where she's like, oh, I can't use my technology to, 
influence you, blah, blah, blah. She, she, I mean, she's being like very anthropological in this point of like, I'm only an observer. I can't influence. And then Zachary says, you know, I reckon you're killing Katkin by not acting. I reckon just by being here, you're breaking the natural order, whether or not you participate. And then like she says, he says the most important thing, which is really what triggers her, what gets her to, to act why is a prescient's life worth more than a valleysman's? And it's when he says that, that she kind of breaks down and gives him medicine and, um, you know, he's able to sneak it to a cat can and she survives. But I found that really interesting because that's also kind of the, the crisis of faith that, that Adam Ewing is coming to. Right. To interfere or not to interfere. Oh, well, and what, what I also found interesting about that is as she's doing this, she kind of mutters to herself, if my president ever find it out, my whole faculty would be disbanded. So uh, then we find out that she, you know, she's part of, she's, she's a researcher in kind of this official structure in the way that several of the characters in Sonny's story have been. And also Six Smith, um, who is also a, an academic um, who has to decide whether or not to... Yeah, haven't been kicked out. Yep. I think Marinim is a really interesting character, like we would expect the story maybe to be told through her eyes and it would be a story of sort of like contact um, between two very different peoples. Um, but the, because the story is told through Zachary's eyes, uh, it comes across in a very different way. And Marinim, I mean, she's almost got like the prime directive from Star Trek going on where she's like, you know, living among these people, but she can't really let on too much about her like more advanced society or technology. And, and in this scene, when, uh, Katkin is is dying um, from the scorpion fish sting. Um, you know, she basically says, like, this is the prime directive. I can't help out your sister. And he says, Zachary says, dingo shit. Like, he's not having it at all. Um, which I think it's a really interesting... And again, it, it mirrors uh, Adam Ewing when he's trying to, like, reason with Altua. Like, hey, Altua, you gotta, you gotta realize, like... I, I'm going to be, like, sticking my neck way out. And Atua was like, okay, cool, dude, but, like, I'm going to die. So, like, I guess you can just murder me right now if you want. Um, it's a great, like, parallel scene, I think. Right. And then later we do get Miranim going against her previous hesitation, though, because she does eventually tell Zachary about the history of her people and about basically what got them here and um yeah zachary says she uh she uh said said the whole true and this this idea of truth really comes out in this section that we've we've had come up before too and um i really i I really liked this section um and he's talking about well what i love about this is basically he, he 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 is asking what caused the fall and what she said uh zachary realizes that he's not going to be able to tell this to others not because it like requires i don't he just he realizes that there's no way he can communicate this to others because he's gotten a little bit of understanding of the world beyond by listening to her. And what she says is it was a hunger in the heart of humans, a hunger for more. 
and then you know he's like but Miranam why can't I why can't I tell this or why don't you tell us this you know why why, why is this the first time I've heard this from you even though I've known you my whole life and she says Valley's men not want to hear that human hunger birthed the civilized but human hunger killed it too um and then like right after that sort of in the in the next scene he says uh there he he asks Marinim it's when they get to talk um, about truth yes and so he asks Marinim does the world fly around the sun which is what the abbess says or does the sun fly around the world like the the men of Hilo say and Marinim says the abbess is correct the the earth flies around the sun and he's and Zachary asks then the true true is different to the semen true and then Marinim says yay and it usually is and that's why true true is preciouser and rarer in diamonds which is essentially like it's it's a form of the truer truth thing from uh, from Adam Ewing's journal right yeah it was great I mean the thing is is there's like you can tell David Mitchell is still putting in all of these great like fr- like turns of phrase and quips and quotes and like cool stuff but it's all filtered through this really thick dialect so it actually doesn't sound that impressive when you read it aloud well and another thing that i find so interesting is as they're getting up to the top of the mountain you know Mirnam says the air up here is thin and watery and your brain will get diresome hungry and make this weird place a weird summer and we've had moments before where Zachary was being spoken to by old Georgie and it's only really when he gets up to this, you know, up to the top of the mountain with Mirnam that he starts to doubt old Georgie. He starts to doubt what he's thinking, basically realizing that he's not being spoken to directly by the devil, but that he's having hallucinations that aren't real. And not that he knows it's a hallucination or knows what an hallucination is, but he, he grasps that it's not real in a way that he previously didn't. And it's only after coming to this realization of like the true true is different from the semen true. Also, I mean, this is also the section where, he, you know, he's talking about the, the the egg that she has, the silvery egg, you know, which he, he saw the vision of Sanmi in and in fact, which his son possesses and shows the rest of the story to us. She uses it to open the door to one of the observatories and he doesn't really understand it. And he asks her, you know what it does and i love this so much she said an horizon is a brain and a window and it's a memory its brain lets you do things like unlock observatory doors which you've just seen its window lets you speak to other horizons and the far far its memory lets you see what horizons in the past seen and heard and keep what what my horizon sees and hears safe from forgetting the previous section and the next section is titled an horizon of sanmi 451 and we were like oh what does this mean you know katie you, you looked it up you're like oh it's a it's a form of prayer or it's i mean it's a religious term used to like conferred with a deity and then sky you were like yeah but in this section it actually means like uh a, uh and like an interrogation like, <laughs> yeah and so what i find so fascinating now is in this section we realize now an horizon is an actual object and in fact in the horizon of Sanmi 451, like they were recording it with an horizon. Um, but at the same time, like Sanmi is a worship or is an object of worship. Like for, for Zachary, he is praying to her that it's, it's the literal use of horizon. But for Miranem, who calls her object, the horizon, it is this kind of abstracted version, you know, this, this 
technical technological appropriation of a religious term so you know it is she's she's using it to communicate not with deities but with people far away but she's also using it to you know like a brain um or almost like performing miracles you know zachary doesn't understand how the door opens he just understands that it does but she's she's also using it though to record and preserve the truth and you know i mean look at the way we use i mean we do appropriate and use religious terms in our technology what do you call the image you upload to your profile icons come to mind people either call it an icon or an avatar i I don't know that's just really fascinating to me like it's a very intelligent and logical and subtle use of of a religious term in a technological way that we have been doing for a long time without even realizing in our society right yes but it's there the technological gap between um, the the prescience and the valley people, uh, that gap is uh, is I think like one of the most interesting dynamics in this section. Um, you know, there's that old what is it? Is it Arthur C. Clarke that said uh, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic? I feel like that was either yeah. Arthur C. Clarke or maybe like Isaac Asimov, one of those real. Cool it was, was Clark. I'm fairly certain. Yeah, um, I mean that's that's like exactly what's going on here. Um, you know, all of the Valley people think that Marinim is is like a magical being, um, and and uh, Zachary's son even says like, you know, in his old age, my father even believed that Marinim was Sanmi. Um, so they're you know, um, like at one point they. When when Marinim first arrives, everyone just keeps asking her questions about the ship people. And she says, you know, she gives them like straightforward answers like, how does your ship move? And she says, fusion engines. And everyone nodded, but they had no idea what fusion engines were. But they didn't want to seem stupid. So they all were like, oh, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah, and it's it's interesting. At one point. They also, um, they, they're asking about where she comes from. And she says, oh, an island called Prescience One. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, an island, blah, blah, blah. But then later on, when it's just the two of them together, Zachary's asking Miriam, like, what was the world like? Because they have kind of, they have picture books or something. It's almost like, you know, Sanmi had a, a picture book, but it was like a, it was like a children's book. And so th- it was actually Yuna that had this book. So Yuna based her vision of the outside world on this children's book. And Zachary's like, you know, was it, were there towers of stars and, 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 and suns that, you know, as tall as, as Mauna Kea. So basically skyscrapers and stuff. Were there these, you know, cities bigger than the whole big isle? And Miranem says, well, basically, yeah, there were. And when my people first came to Prescience one after the fall, it was 50 years before we like set out and looked for them. Uh, and they had names like, like Melbourne and, and, you know, she names a couple, uh, Melbourne, Auckland, et cetera, et cetera. But then one of the examples of a city she names is Buenos Aires. Right. Which you remember that was the, which uh, was... the, the fictionalized city in which Half-Lives, a Louisa Ray Mysteries takes place. Yes. Um, but they, when they, uh, when the uh, prescience, uh, go to all of these cities they find that they're all basically totally in ruins and that there are no there's like no people there still and certainly no like pre-fall people 
And she basically tells Zachary, like, you know, your culture on Big Island is one of a handful of, you know, stable societies left in the world. And that's why they're there, studying them, try, trying to understand. Well, and I mean, she even says there's probably more smart left in the whole of the Big Isle than there is left in most of the rest of the world. <laughs> um, yeah, so one thing I wanted, really the last thing I have to talk about with this section before we get into each other section and we can you know kind of relate back to it as those end um you know Miriam takes him away from the big island he he kind of settles down gets a new tribe and this is the end of his story when he's talking to his son and previously he and Miriam have established that she doesn't believe in souls and so basically she takes him to maui and there's like a new tribe arriving and he's gonna like resettle in this tribe and she's gonna go and the last thing Zachary really says is, I watched clouds wobbly from the floor of that kayak. Souls cross ages like clouds cross skies. And though clouds shape nor hue nor size don't stay the same, it's still a cloud and so is a soul. Who can say where the clouds blowed from or who the soul will be tomorrow? Only Sanmi, the east and the west and the compass and the atlas. Yea, only the atlas of clouds. <laughs> so yeah, clearly... Um, Hey, look, thesis statement. Yo, for the guys, book. that's the name of this novel. It's the name of this novel, and it's also the entire idea that we've been trying to convey in six stories. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, uh, that's all I have right now. But you know, if you two have more to add to the section, please, please. No, I think we touched on everything that. I found important. Yeah, let's let's go on to selections. We actually covered we we covered both of mine, which was one the section I just read at the end. Otherwise, my my favorite otherwise my favorite line was the one between him and Miranim about truth and like the true truth versus the seeming truth. It wasn't duck farts. <laughs> uh, that was a pretty my, great one. My favorite part was um and. Uh, this sort of relates to the idea of this, you know, cloud atlas with the ever-changing souls and clouds. Um, this part is sort of when shortly after Marinim first arrives, um, and Marinim is staying in, uh, in Zachary's family home, and he's not happy about it, and he, uh, he doesn't sleep, and he says he doesn't sleep because, among other things, a mysterious someone, what was harshly clattering through our dwelling, picking up stuff here and putting it down there, and the name of this mysterious someone was Change. And Change here is capitalized. Um, and I just, I, I really like that as, like, a personification of Change, as, like, a person who comes into your home and, like, moves around all your furniture. I'll subscribe to that. Yeah. Uh, mine, like you said, John, we already talked about several of mine that I really appreciated, but there's another specific bit. So it's after their adventure on Mauna Kea, and I've really appreciated this. It says, uh, Old Ma Yibber spread the news that the Zachary what came down off Mauna Kea weren't the same Zachary what, what had gone up. And true enough, I suppose, there ain't no journey what don't change you some. 
I think that's a that's a pretty true statement. That's a that's some Lord of the that's some like Tolkien stuff right there. That is that's some Lord of the Rings right there. <laughs> Not only are there no journeys that don't change you, we have five journeys that we're only halfway through. Right. We Woo! get to see how they finish changing because we've really only seen the change of one character so far. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to you guys experiencing the second half of this book because if your experience of it is anything like mine was the first time I read it, it's going to be torture waiting a week to read each new section because when I first read this book, I picked it up kind of to read on an airplane and through a, you know, a trip and I it took me about three weeks to get to the first section because I didn't just sit down and read like one section. I'd be like, I'd read 10 pages, put it down. Next day, I'd read another 10 pages. Once I got to the end of Seleucia's Cross and everything after, I finished the book in three days. <laughs> yeah. We get to it finish gets, all of these half-finished love affairs. Yay! Yeah, and it gets so much more intoxicating watching that happen. Um, but enough of hinting what is to come. Uh, I would like to mention some more of what has passed in my non-text-related favorite things of the past week or so. Um, two, two biggins for me. Number one, Star Wars... Well, sorry, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, which is a very mouthful of a title, and I hope they figure out a better way to advertise these spinoff movies other than just a Star a Wars Star story. Wars jaunt. Um, yes. I I didn't know how I felt about this movie and about the concept of like Disney turning Star Wars and this never-ending never you know, series the way that they have done with Marvel, and Rogue One brought me a lot of excitement and a lot of faith in their editorial strategy. Uh, I don't want to give away too much. And I know everybody's talking about this movie, so there's nothing really unique or clever that I can add, but I, I love the way that they committed to telling a standalone story and um, the way that the story kind of wraps itself up. You know that they're not going to use this to kind of just endlessly drag things on in the way that they have been with the Marvel movies. I'm looking at you, Thor to the dark world or, you know, Captain America 2. Some people like that movie. I thought it was okay. I just, all of the Marvel movies really only inched the plot forward. And I was afraid of the same thing happening with Star Wars. And this is a great sign that maybe they're not going to be doing that. At the same time, seeing the full Rebel fleet come out of hyperspace together um, fulfilled so many childhood fantasies of mine and actually made me cry a little bit. I was a huge Star Wars kid when I was younger. So they're doing a good job. Other than that, I got a PS four during black friday and picked up uncharted four had never played any game in the series before usually don't like to pick up series at the end but oh wow i was amazed by that game i have not had so much fun playing a game in a long 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 time so just it was beautiful and i, I was actually really impressed by its art historical bona fides it's not like tomb raider where they just kind of make shit up um obviously a lot of this was made up because it is a video game, but I thought it had a much stronger grounding in history than most other kind of adventure style games do. At one point, you're at an auction and there is an optional manifest that you can view. It, it's not important at all. It's just to add flavor. And so you pick it up and you're reading over the list of illegally obtained antiquities at this auction. And one of them is the Euphronios crater. Like, wow, they did some research, right? Who's going to talk about the Euphronius crater in a video game? So yeah, those are my two. Star Wars story, Rogue One, comma, a Star Wars story. Go see it. Uncharted 4, if you have any interest, go play it. It was beautiful, very, very satisfying, great emotional development of video game. I really think it's, 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 it's a bright spot in what video games can be. 
while you're at it, take a look at the Euphronius crater. It's pretty great. It is. You'll have to go to Italy to see it now, but hey. All right. Um, my my thing of the week is, uh, I guess, related to our discussion of earlier. I, I sort of mentioned that this uh, story, Slusha's Crossing, as a kind of like first contact story. Um, and I mentioned that like Marinim is basically following the prime directive of Star Trek. Uh, so I'll talk about I've been working through uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, um, which has uh, been restored in HD with like all new digital special effects and stuff like that and is uh, available on Netflix. Um, and it is fantastic. This is my first time doing a Star Trek thing. Um, and I, I can't believe I had missed it for so long. Uh, it's like there's a lot of like campy funny stuff um but when it is real and when they're telling stories about you know first contact between cultures and things like that they do such an amazing job um and so i've been listening along two episodes at a time um with or i'm sorry i've been watching but i've been listening along with a podcast called the greatest generation which is um a podcast that's that's doing like two episodes a week um and, uh, and if you have some room in your podcast schedule, uh, they're a fun one to listen to where they talk about each different Star Trek episode. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I find myself looking at it every three or four episodes and going, man, I sure wish I lived in that world. It sounds great. Um, so yeah, uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, if you haven't yet seen it, now is a great time to do so. Welcome. I am so excited for you. <laughs> Oh man, I'm like halfway through season four right now. Um, season four is fantastic, uh, isn't it? Oh yeah. yeah, season four is when it gets really good. Yep, I'm 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 looking forward to watching a couple episodes later today. <laughs> I don't really have uh, anything of much substance uh, because this week it has been a very busy one. For I had my annual holiday ice show that we did so i've been busy with that as far as consuming media the only media consumption i've really done besides reading this book has been uh helping me fall asleep at night i've been watching gilmore girls which (laughs) is silly but not not a bad show at all and i had never really watched it before i had seen episodes here and there on tv uh, when it was on, but I had never actually watched it, so now I'm uh, watching through, and it's entertaining. It is. I also kind of have recently picked it up, and I'm not dedicated to it. I'm just watching an episode here or there, but I really understand why like, this is a show that's resonated with people for so long. Yeah, I get that too, and yeah, I'm, I'm starting with the original series because I hadn't really watched the whole thing before, so I didn't really know what was going on so that's what i'm going to do and then i'll probably watch the new ones when i finish this all right well thanks uh, everyone for joining us for another week another another episode and look forward to next week when we're going to be reading and finishing an horizon of sanmi 451 i'm john i'm katie and i'm sky and have a great week everyone yay Thank you for listening to Interlibrary Loan. You can find us online at illbook.club, and you can send us an email to hello at illbook.club. We do our best to respond to each email, so please let us know about your thoughts, and feel free to recommend any books you'd like us to discuss in the show. We are Interlibrary Loan on Facebook and at illbookcast on Twitter, and we love hearing from you. 
If you're not already a subscriber, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. We would particularly appreciate it if you would give us a rating in iTunes. It really helps us to show up in searches and reach a new audience. We also have a Patreon page where you can donate as little as $1 a month to help us grow our podcast. Through your generous support, we've been able to purchase many new pieces of equipment, helping us bring you a better-sounding, more professional podcast. Nothing makes us more excited than a new pledge, and we greatly appreciate all the support we've received so far. 